0: Just a heads up, everyone, this podcast features adults having adult conversations, and there might be the chance of adult language. Also, we may talk about some difficult grieving experiences and themes of mental distress that can trigger some people. If this conversation stirs up some hard emotions for you, please reach out to someone you trust. Hi. Hi. I'm Tatiana Rothery, and you are listening to Crazy Grief, the podcast. Grief can make us feel like we're going crazy. It affects our emotions, our physical health, and our mental state. It has a huge impact on the way we relate to people and the way we see ourselves. Crazy Grief is a safe space for us to have candid conversations about grief and all the crazy stuff that comes with it. We are here to share our stories, how we cope with grief, And what kind of help really helps? If you lost your person and you feel like you're going crazy, let me reassure you, you're not going crazy. You're just grieving. So let's talk about it. Hi, everyone. Um, Today on Crazy Grief, we have Christy Lanterman. Christy is a master level licensed professional counselor in Kansas City. Her work has an emphasis in couples and family therapy, but she's also very experienced in counseling individuals and working with a diverse clientele, presenting with a variety of concerns, including trauma, history of physical and sexual abuse, depression, anxiety, grief, also religious wounds, relationships and family concerns, infidelity, intimacy, co-parenting, which is really hard, divorce, separation, and reunification. So she is all rounder, she's pretty awesome. Christy and I have known each other for many, many years, like from our young um, young age when we used to be dancers together, kind of like with a group of people that toured around. Um, She's incredibly gifted, and what I think is really amazing about Christy is that since she has become a counselor, she has this incredible ability to understand that every person's story and situation is very unique and valid. She is intentional about developing and um, developing trust and creating a judgment-free space because she views counseling as a collaborative process, where her primary goal is always to meet her client at wherever point they are in their own journey. When she's working with couples, she takes a Gottman approach, which integrates empirical evidence on what makes love last. And who doesn't want that, right? And Gottman is based on 40 years of relationship research, takes the guesswork out of how we can cultivate strong and lasting relationships. So Christy um, often um, see couples, she deals with individuals struggling to find and keep love, individuals suffering from internal criticism, which um, I can put my hand up to that one. Also individuals overcoming religious wounding and couples and individuals exploring sexuality and eroticism, which I think it's a um, a hot topic at the moment. Um, Now, I, I think I've said enough. I just want to jump right into it. So, Christy, it's so good to have you on Crazy Grief. How are you doing? Oh,
1: thank you. I'm really good. Thank you for that very flattering introduction, I feel.
0: Very humbled. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's uh, it's all true. It's all true, and it's been such a long time since we've seen each other. Like we used to tour a lot together, and then I moved to New Zealand, and then your life took a different path, and now here we are. Like God, what twenty something years later, yeah. I'm a counselor, I do crazy podcasts and, and and videos and and whatnot, and so. Yeah. I'm super, super interested in knowing some things from you because every time I see you posting a book that you recommend on your Facebook page or you you make some amazing comments, you're you you you're an incredible writer as well. So you have some really awesome blog posts that you po- post out there. And I'm always in awe of you and the things that kind of like um, floats your boat, right? And I remember reading a book um and this was after Jason passed away. And it, was, um, it had to do with female sexuality. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was something that I was really struggling with. I was struggling with kind of like in silence because mm-hmm. um, I think there is a taboo around um, female sexuality um, in widowhood. Mm-hmm. And so when I contacted you and I went, hey, would you like to talk about sex and grief for my <laughs> podcast? What was your first reaction?
1: I was like, wow, I hope, you know, I was really flattered and it was definitely something that I'm really passionate about, you know, s- sexuality and sensuality because um, I-, I was a little nervous too, because I know that the way and the manner in which we met was a very conservative Christian setting. And at least in my upbringing before you and I met in my younger years, and and also the context in that we met, you know, talking about sex and sensuality and sexuality is very taboo and, and we don't talk about it and there's a silence around it. And so I was a little nervous when you asked me just because of the context in which we met, you know, I'm much more, um, I've definitely have grown into a more sexual and sensual person myself and have accepted more areas of myself than I maybe was allowed to when I was younger. And so initially I was nervous, but then, you know, we (laughs) chatted a little bit and I let you know that, you know, I might not feel or think the same way that I used to in the setting that we had met in. And you were like, yep, I get that. I understand that. And that kind of eased some of my concerns. So I was like, okay, well, good. Let's talk about this. Let's go there then. So that was kind of my reaction.
0: Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks for being really honest. And I think that that's a really um an important point that you made that, you know, in the setting and at the time that we met, it was... Um, Yeah, we we were really passionate about the things that we did and really passionate about the um, spiritual context in which we found ourselves. But it really was taboo to talk about sex, Mm -hmm. to talk about anything that was perceived um, as something that was from the flesh and not spiritual enough, you know, and not moral enough. Um, And I think that... Growing up in that context and then for me, I got married into that context and then having to find my feet and having to find not just my feet, other parts of my body, you know, in, in a marriage where yeah. we'd never really talked openly about it with anybody else was really hard. And that created a lot of conflict in my marriage. Yeah. And and so Jason and I were always trying to figure out how do we do this this thing that is so sacred, which is this relationship between the two of us. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, who do we talk to? We don't know what we're doing. And, and we actually develop things and we grew and and our understanding of spirituality expanded and our intimacy also um, deepened and, and, when we were in the place in our lives that we actually saw a counselor, such as yourself, and it was incredible, incredibly helpful for our marriage, um, especially in the sexual area, and that's one of the things that Esther Perel talks about, right? You fix the sex, you fix the relationship, and mm-hmm. so Jason and I started in this new journey of um, how do we create this intimacy um, in the context of um, our spiritual beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we were doing pretty great I must say and then he died mm-hmm. and in some ways I'm really grateful that um, I, I know I don't mean to sound I'm really grateful that my husband died because that's definitely not it at all but I'm really grateful that the time of his death was when we were in a place of being not only okay, but really flourishing yeah. in our sexual intimacy, in our friendship, in dealing with finances, in being on the same page as how do we raise our kids. And so that was really great that it was at a time of flourishing, because mm-hmm. if I look back and I think that if Jason had died when we were having major issues, especially in relationship to our sex, the sex tense and and an icky part of our marriage. I mm. think that would probably bring a lot of a lot of shit to deal with that I didn't need to at a time when his death was just so catastrophic for me. Does that make sense?
1: A hundred percent. And when I work with and um, you know I have so much going through my head and what you said and there's there everything you're saying is so profound. And I think one thing that really stands out to me is that sometimes when Grief becomes extremely complicated. Grief is hard no matter what, right? Whether it was a good relationship or not, and when grief gets really, really complicated for some of the folks that I see is when the relationship was not the best it could be, because mm-hmm. there's sort of this unfinished business. There's these un, there's these regrets, there's these um, feelings of remorse, there's these feelings of needing to forgive. There's these feelings of um, important emotional statements that are unsaid, you know, and so and then there's no way to go back and do any of that. And you're stuck with that, you know, and so what I hear you saying is that, of course, you're not grateful that uh-huh. he's gone, but you're grateful that your relationship got to the point that it did before you lost him, that you got to a beautiful, flourishing place that many of us strive and hope to. And many people don't get their relationships, to. And what a beautiful thing for you to experience that when you did. And, you know, not that, not that it makes grief easier, but I I have seen people get stuck in complicated grief because the relate, when the relationship is not good, when it was not what they wanted it to be, when there was unfinished, you know, significant things that needed to be said and needed to be done.
0: And so I think one of the things that I really wanted us to explore today, it's um, not necessarily about complicated grief because that's a beast in itself, right? Mm -hmm. But it's about this feeling that I had, and I believe so many other people that have lost their life partner, husbands, wives, they feel, which is this, um, if the relationship was not great, you you have all those regrets like what you're saying, and you wish that you could go back and do things different, and 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 recreate or 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 heal the intimacy, especially the sexual intimacy, because it's the the one thing that you're supposed to share with that one person, and yeah. that one person is now not there. Yeah, um, but then. Regardless if the relationship was really difficult and had lots and lots of issues, or if the relationship was in a place like mine was of flourishing, this one person that you share your body with, that you're not just naked physically, that you're naked spiritually, emotionally in front of this one person, this one person that sees you at your most vulnerable, and that person is not there anymore. Yeah what i found was that it's really interesting that in the in the christian settings and this perhaps this is just my perception okay this is my perception from um hearing what people say and kind of like putting two and two together um it's this underlying concept that if a man loses his partner um he kind of is almost like encouraged to move on really quick and, and find somebody else right because a man needs that quote unquote right and 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 by needing that it's kind of like oh a man needs a wife you know to cook for him to clean for him to whatever this is not the norm today anymore because guys do a lot of that and they can deal with it but it's the need quote unquote as like the physical need man needs sex therefore you know his wife his partner died go hurry up and find somebody else because man needs that But for women, it's a little different. Even when people would say to me, you know, when the right time comes, when the right man comes, then you're going to find somebody and then you're going to be happy again, which initially I hated. I hated it. Um, But I think for women, especially in a religious setting, this whole notion of um, finding a new partner, it's not even finding a new partner, it's finding a new husband, which means Put a ring on it, go in front of a church, get the government involved, sign the dotted line, and then you're okay. But the okay is more like from a financial perspective, from looking after your kids' perspective, so, you know, so that you have somebody to look after you. Not necessarily um, a woman has sexual needs that she is, you know, allowed again, quote, unquote, to go and pursue to fulfill those needs. And this can become really, really hard when you're a widow, because everybody Mm kind of wants you to be happy in the context of this dignified kind of system, right? Which is the the marriage um, contract, but not as I definitely had not got the vibe from anybody that I was a sexual being. <laughs> I was allowed, I was allowed to go and explore my sexuality after my husband died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot that I said into this. I just want to know, like from your perspective, like what are some of the things, like we talked about sexuality being taboo. When you mix sexuality and grief, it becomes even more taboo, right? Mm-hmm. And so from your perspective, what is it that happens from you know this person dies, somebody was left behind? How can that person start to grappling with I am a sexual being that is also dealing with a lot of intense grief emotions mm-hmm. what is what is the intersection between those two things you know grief and sexuality,
1: yeah. It's very individualized for each person, right? You know, you're mentioning some some really significant messages growing up in the conservative background that we have and absorbing some of those messages about sexuality that men innately are these hungry sexual beings, but women, you know, they're not. They don't need sex as much. They don't want sex as much. And to be humble and meek and um, quiet is to be, innately feminine in this Christian background. So so part of kind of what I'm hearing you you say with the struggle that, you know, from our context and our background is the fact that we don't always fit those molds. You know, we don't, um, it's not always the case that people assigned as men at birth and people assigned as female at birth fit those molds. Sometimes you have, for one, sex drives change dramatically over the lifespan, right? You might start out um, not very, you know, turned on by very many things, and then that can accelerate over the lifespan. And the other way can happen. So it it doesn't really have anything to do with whether you're male or female, it has to do individually, like your lifespan and, and how you grow. And so part of the shame and that intersection with grief that I'm hearing you talk about is coming from that context that we, that we have real rich and strong roots in, in that women don't have sexual needs or, you know, if they do, they're not as important. Whereas if you're a man, well, we understand that's important and you should go then find a mate. Right. And and it's, it's not the case. -hmm. It's really not the case. We don't fit into these nice little molds. And we certainly don't fit into those molds over the lifespan because that drastically changes. Mm -hmm. And so the problem with suffering in that, because, you know, I think a lot of times what makes grief so hard is that, you know, we feel so alone in that. No one else can experience the kind of grief that we're experiencing. No one had that kind of relationship with that person no one had that kind of hopes and dreams and experiences with that person so you're alone in that experience and then you're alone in your sexuality as well mm. because it's taboo to talk about it right so the intersection to me is like compounding the aloneness and the isolation mm. and um, that can be really devastating to be in that place by yourself um, and I don't know kind of the 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 cultural or the um the community setting setting you're in now, but the when we don't talk about sex, when we don't honor our sexuality, just by not talking about it, we associate shame with it. You know, and that's why the abstinent only education is so harmful. And that's why we see more um, you know, more teen pregnancies with abstinent only. That's why we see more issues in sexual assault with abstinent only only that's why we see a a slew of sexual issues with abstinent only education because when we don't talk about it it must be shameful
0: Hmm. it must
1: be secretive right and so um so that's where kind of that taboo comes from and that's where we associate sexuality with shame instead of sexuality with this is who I am and sexuality and this is what I feel right now and sexuality, and I want to explore that with my partner. I want to explore that on my own or I want to become my person. So when we talk about it, when we educate people, when we educate them about their bodies, when we talk to our teens and our tweens about their bodies, we're lifting that shame mm-hmm. and we're allowing them to make more informed and mature decisions about themselves and their body. So when I think about coming back to your question, when I think about the intersection of grief and sexuality it's just, it seems like it's a compounded experience of feeling very alone and feeling really isolated in your experience in both realms.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I totally agree with you because um, grief is a, a very, very lonely journey. And mm-hmm. you can have some family and friends who are very supportive, but they are um, people that are witnessing what you're going through. I'm mm-hmm. um, unable to get into it with you because that's just the nature of it. And I love what mm-hmm. you said about the secrecy and the um that is linked with shame in this area of sexuality because I see I, I believe there are two kinds of secrets. I believe that there are secrets that are sacred yeah, and beautiful. And yeah. you want to hold them because of because they're holy to you and mm-hmm. to the person that you share that with. And there are secrets that are shameful and harmful, and you need to keep them a secret because otherwise um, the repercussions of opening up about that are, are too scary or too mm-hmm. daunting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a shame, like to use that word, that, that it's shameful to talk about sex. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that as as a widow myself, like there was definitely times in my journey, Jason passed away three and a half years ago. And you know, this whole thing of like, um, when, when you're separated from the person that you love for a little bit of time, you get to miss them, but you know that they are gonna come back, right? When you're separated from them for a longer time, it becomes a little harder and you know and, and you want to communicate more but when you get together is that explosion of desire and, and you you return to that place of safety um but that whole thing of um when you are apart then you kind of grow in desire if you're in love with someone right when you're apart because of death it's it adds a new dimension to that desire because then it is something that you cannot have. And desire thrives in that, right? If it rightly or wrongly, whatever, desire thrives in what you cannot have, that's what you want most. Um, as, you know, complex human beings that we are. So I I've discovered this term, which is uh, skin hunger, which this this desire for my husband. Just like I would, I remember just spraying his perfume on his shirt and going to sleep with that, like, and putting a really heavy blanket on top of me to just feel like a little bit of weight because my skin, my body was so hungry with desire for him. But we don't talk about that. We don't, don't talk. There's so many things about grief in this area of this desire that cannot be fulfilled. And especially on sexual desire Mm -hmm. So for the first time in my life After Jason died I started going, okay Well, um, I don't even know my body Because Mm -hmm. in in my relationship with Jason My body was kind of like Somehow belonged to him and it's weird to say that, you know, but it just felt like that. The truth is, I to be to speak really plainly and and I'm sorry for people that might be listening if you are offended. So sorry about that, but I'm going to talk about masturbation right now because I did not even know how to masturbate because I didn't need to. I had a husband that was all over me. All the fucking time. So I wanted him to give me a break. I was raising two little kids. I was tired. I was working hard. I was cleaning the house. And, you know, we had to kind of work those things out. Like, you want to sex every day? Really? Like every day? And and he's like, yeah, let's do it twice a day. And, And so we had to negotiate those things. And all of a sudden, that which was like a constant management, because mm-hmm. life happens, You and sometimes you just want to go to bed and sleep. We had to manage that in our relationship. All of a sudden, it's not there. And then, of yeah. course, regrets of why did I not have sex with him three times a day? I should have. And, of course, you can't go and mm-hmm. change any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's not here. Yeah, and I'm like, okay, well, what do I do with all this desire? What do I do with this hunger for him, the skin hunger? Yeah, Um, I'm gonna learn to touch myself, and I went, holy crap! I don't even know how to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what my body looks like. Yeah. So for me, it was this very slow and kind of like choppy um, season in my life of kind of going, is this okay? So giving myself permission to know my own body, to own my own body sexually amidst grief and not being able or not, or, or at least feeling like I couldn't talk to anybody yeah. made all of this so difficult, so yeah. difficult.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yes, you're talking about a lot of really important things and to kind of rewind and get caught up to you, there's a difference in between privacy and secrecy, right? Mm. And I think also in in some religious settings, um, privacy and boundaries weren't honored. So any secrecy was not okay. So we had to sort of, you know, tell all or be completely transparent or confess, you know and that's not necessarily healthy or helpful, there is a sense of privacy versus secrets and, and deceit or shame, you know, and that kind of thing. And so I just love that you put it that way. There's, there's different types of secrets and there's privacy. And, and to your point, you know, we were just talking about Esther Prowl before we started recording and to your point about desire and that you need, you can't desire something you own. You can't desire something you possess. There has to be sort of a gap. And what Esther Perel found in her research and all the couples and all the people that she interviewed is that when they were most attracted to their partner, to their spouse, was when they were kind of over there in their element doing something that they're really good at. It was when there was distance. So like maybe watching your partner give a toast at a wedding or watching your partner upstage, you know, acting an act or, you know, watching them do a dance. And it was something where they, you were separate from them and there was this great arousal and attraction because there was that gap. Mm -hmm. Because you can't desire something that you possess and that you already have. Mm -hmm. And so that makes a lot of sense to me that you would say that, that with this gap and this permanent gap, how much desire is there with something that you can no longer have? It's going to make that even more. You know that makes so much sense to me. And um, and then to your last point um, about what to do with that desire and where to go, and you know, not even like you know, your body having been somebody else's playground and not your own playground, and like discovering that, you know, and especially people from. The conservative Christian context like us, that is really hard. And it just makes me so happy that you are doing that, that you are loving yourself that way, that you you are exploring, that you are a part in your life where you're allowing yourself to um, enjoy yourself in that way, because that can be a real hiccup and a real pause for people where they don't do that because they feel maybe it's sinful or maybe it's bad, or maybe it's unhealthy, you know, and it's really, there's, Nothing in the research or in what sexologists are saying is that masturbation is unhealthy. You know, what sometimes when we need to define healthy and sexuality, it's easier to define what's not healthy than to define what's healthy because there's so much, there's, so, there's such a big area of healthy and sexuality. Mm. It's when you, when you do the boundaries of what's unhealthy, that gives you a better understanding of like, here's our playground. Here's our area to explore. Here's our wonderland, you know? And so when we think about what's unhealthy, it's those out of control sexual behavior. So is this something that's getting in the way of work? Is it uncontrollable? Like I'm compulsively going to a porn website or, or um, doing webcam, you know, intercourse, sex with somebody and I don't want to, you know, is it out of control Is part of like, yes or no? Is it consensual? Like, am I consenting to doing this? You know, is anyone else involved consenting to do this? Is anything that I'm watching, is that has that been filmed consensually? You know, is this legal? Mm-hmm. Is what I'm doing legal, right? And then um, is what I'm doing causing me distress or someone else distress? And if you're checking all those boxes and you're within, you know, there's so much there to explore and to enjoy. And there's so much to experience about yourself. And, but, but for whatever reason, we, because we don't talk about this stuff and because we, oh, many of us are shamed for our sexuality. We think that we can't do that. We think that that's not okay, or it's not within a married um, context. It's not with my, with my partner or my spouse, then it must be off limits. And that's really not what we're finding is healthy and, and wonderful for us.
0: So, in in your experience um, with couples and with you know just um, helping people um, navigate the the sexual traumas, what are some of the things that you can just highlight that can can become like a, a starting point for someone? Say someone like what I was about you know a year ago that was just riddled with desire but not knowing what to do and and really struggling like not only um physically with that desire and and feeling really clunky about um, my own body and how do I touch my own body how do I um relate to my own sexuality but also like spiritually in in emotionally, mentally, because I think sex involves everything else. I think for me, like sex is not just something that happens, you know, um, in in my sexual organs. It, it's it starts in the mind. It starts with you know maybe a smell or or some sensual um, sound or it, it's it's so much more. And so what what would be um your wise counsel for somebody say say I came into your um, clinic a year ago and I was in that place of going I don't even know where to start like could you give me some you know point me in the right direction
1: yeah um I think that would well first of all that would be followed up with a lot of like follow-up questions and like what do you want this to look like what what are your sexy contexts what is your frame of reference of what's okay and what's not okay what causes you distress what doesn't cause you distress and so there would be a lot of really personal follow up questions that i would ask this person to kind of get a frame of reference of what healthy sexuality looks like for them cuz very much so in therapy it's very important that we do as therapists give our clients the most up-to-date research that we have on sexual health and wellness. Um, But then the framework in which that is experienced is so individualized for that particular person because we all have our own values and we all have our own morals and our own compass of what feels right to us. And so it would be a very individualized process that I would do with that person. Um, I do know that, you know, depending on people's comfort level that could be you know no masturbation to masturbation that could be um absolutely no porn to involving porn that could you know it's so it's it's such a wide variety and range of what people are comfortable with and what comes to them um based on their values and what they feel natural to i do know that uh I love this book called um, Pure, The Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Generation of Women and How I Broke Free by Linda K. Klein. She talks about how um, single women in the evangelical church didn't know what to do with their sexual desire, right? They they didn't have a husband yet. They wanted to be married, but they didn't have a husband yet and they had the sexual desire. So what were they supposed to do with it? And what she would say is that within their frame of reference of what, you know, okay, I can't, I can't enjoy my sexuality outside of, you know, the context of marriage, but I'm also married to Jesus, right? I'm also married to my Lord and Savior. And so they would, some of these women would literally go on dates with Jesus and have, you know, have like set up a nice dinner and set up, you know, have some wine. And then they would go and they would enjoy themselves in their bedroom with Jesus in the room. You know? And so that was what was comfortable for them. And I can see you're blushing right. <laughs> <now>. um, <laughs> just, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. If it works yeah, <laughs> You know, you know and that's what works for them. And so my answer, my, my, you know, it, I know it's a non-response. There's no one direction way that I could tell because it's so individualized on what's comfortable for that person you know
0: yeah (laughs) I'm sorry I can't get over that look I I really don't want to be judgmental but I find that really creepy (laughs) I'm sorry that I'm saying this out loud um I think because um of the way that I see and perceive Jesus and um not not you know as in a holy he cannot be touched kind of way it's just like I think that he's so close to me and the very air that I breathe but um but yeah dating Jesus would not that would be a turn off for me <laughs> uh, yeah you know yeah. people do whatever they need to do but um i would not go down that road um yeah and it's, i think what you're saying is really important about um finding what is what is the sexual context of someone's um, um i guess in some ways though If I would stop to think, if I did stop to think about what is the sexual context for me now that my husband is not here, yeah. And on the surface, it's like, well, there is nothing I can do, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It's just one more thing in life that, oh well, it's a bummer, you know. You kind of sacrifice, you you put up with it, and then you just went, actually, no, no, because Jason and I worked so hard in our marriage for eighteen years to this was a very important crucial part of our marriage mm-hmm. and i think it is a it's a it's a cornerstone of a marriage because what what you experience in um sexually in a marriage i think for me the it would be if jason would go and experience sex with somebody else that would be the end of our marriage right like there's some contracts that you kind of compromise on and some that you really don't and i think the sex with somebody else for me and for him was just like this is the contract the love contract that we have that you belong to me and I belong to you in a sexual way. And we do not share this with anyone else. Mm-hmm. So for us, that is what, that was the cornerstone of our marriage. Then not having him here meant that for 18 years, I worked so hard mm-hmm. with him to create and nourish this sexual intimacy that was healthy for both of us and we explored each other's bodies we grew into knowing and and discovering things so you work towards that which i think for me is the work of becoming one you know like the bible talks about that two became one and so for me it was that it was that just that merging together of two people two bodies two minds to create something that is really unique and private. Mm-hmm. And so you are constantly going deeper and awakening that. And then he dies. Yeah. So, what am I supposed to do now with all the 18 years of hard work that I did in my sexual life? That mm-hmm. did not die with him. Yeah. And in, in initially, I felt like everything died with Jason, right? Because a person dies your future also dies, at least the future that you had dreamed of where that person was present. Right. But then sexually I became even more aroused because I wanted him more and I missed him more. And and I can't just simply put a plug on 18 years of hard work to get to the stage. Mm-hmm. and And yet... I didn't even know how to really touch myself because in some ways, I don't know, I didn't need to because I had my husband there to explore those things with me. Yeah, Finding the, the courage to give myself permission mm-hmm. to explore my own body and my sexuality was nothing short of a mammoth task mm-hmm. because I, I did not even realize... How much of a taboo I had around sex for one? I, you know, I I had no idea about that. I had lots of time to explore lots of things with my husband and get comfortable with some things and some things I didn't get comfortable with. You know that he perhaps wanted to explore and I'm like, no, that's a no go for me and vice Mm -hmm. versa. But it was a negotiation often. Yeah. Now the negotiation was in my head. But it wasn't just my voice, it was the voice of all the other um, messages that mm-hmm. came, you know, especially from a conservative Christian background, yeah. which I found very unhelpful, very, very unhelpful. And to be honest, some quite harmful. Yes. Um, because one thing that I had discovered that in that loneliness of grief, at least for me because it is like what you said before you are so alone in it that if I did not give myself permission to discover and explore my own sexuality on my own I my head became a place of extreme loneliness because not even I was there yeah and I needed to be on my own court you know Mm -hmm. and I needed to own my own body and I think a lot of people that lose their husbands or wives or life partners, that's a huge struggle for them. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and it's an area that is so important because I think that if your sexuality is repressed or really wounded, mm-hmm. it bleeds through everything else in your life.
1: Yeah,
0: Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. We, we try to... Uh, compartmentalize our lives. you know this is my sexual self, this is my professional self, this is my family self and and though cognitively we might do an okay job at that, we're still one person in a physiological sense in an emotional sense and sort of a, a spiritual sense we're one person. And so to not be fully alive in one area that's so important to us like our sexuality is going to hamper other areas in our life for sure and and I I can't stress enough the importance of what you're saying about these conservative Christian messages sort of sort of dictating and and taking over your and and that taboo really stifling this journey of this next phase of your sexuality. Like you said, you spent 18 years developing something so beautiful with Jason and that doesn't just go away. And yet the Christian, these Christian messages, these conservative Christian messages really only seem to work well for people that are in nuclear family expressions, mm-hmm. families that are same, you know, that are heterosexual, um, man and wife married, um, likely with kids, you know, these messages and these concepts work really well for that expression. And then anything outside of that family expression, it doesn't work very well for a lot of times. And you've really enunciated that and what you're saying here and that, okay, well, I no longer have my husband and I no longer have this beautiful expression of my sensual erotic self with him, but that doesn't go away. So what am I supposed to do with that? And I have all these messages saying that that's the only appropriate place for you to be sexual, for you to be erotic, for you to be a part that in that zone of who you are. And that's just not really possible. You can't just turn that off.
0: Yeah, you cannot turn it off. And I think for me, was what was really interesting was that the moment that I started giving myself permission to explore things um, in the privacy of my own bedroom, um, and by by no means i I wasn't inviting Jesus to be there. You know, that's not what I mean. But it was like, okay, Jesus, come over here, help me out. It wasn't like that. But but, um, in it in 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 making those decisions quite consciously, I was also very aware that my spirituality. And what I believe the Trinity, um, you know, the Trinity's presence in my life, uh, taking away the shame, taking away the condemnation, there is no guilt. So I had to somehow go back and revisit some of the very important key messages of what I believe God is. For me to explore that and and maybe I made it more complex than what it should be but that's where I was at the time which I couldn't really separate um, my physical desire from the the questions and the shame that I felt spiritually and and so I thought I need to somehow integrate both of them because for me I couldn't just do one without the other and so I had to revisit some of those deep embedded beliefs that I had and start going are those my beliefs or were they things that I received from someone else from the pulpit from a book from a message um, that uh, somehow I was not critical enough or aware enough that I just took it you know as face value and adopted those beliefs, but perhaps they are not my own. So what is it that I do believe? What is it that spiritually is really the cornerstone for me? And how does that inform how I deal with my sexuality? And it's really incredible what I have been discovering for myself. And, of course, it's been just over a year of this for me. So I didn't come to this conclusion overnight. And maybe if we talk a year from now, things would probably change and develop for me. But for me, what was really important was going back to what the Bible says about who God really is. Mm -hmm. And number one, God is love. Mm -hmm. And for me also was that he will never leave me, never forsake me. Mm -hmm. And that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So then who are those who are in Christ? Those who actually belong to him. And I had to go back and revisit that. Am I trying to earn brownie points with God by being a quote unquote good girl that behaves in a morally acceptable framework based on somebody else's interpretation of the Bible? Or am I accepted by God as his daughter that he has created with sexual desires, with complexity, and, and he sees it all and he shames none of it because it was all his idea in the first place? Mm-hmm. And the more I discover this freedom and this acceptance of this God that is love and has unconditional love for me. Mm-hmm. The more I felt at ease to be able to start exploring this body that was created by this God, yeah, and and kind of go, oh, you put that there—that's kind of fun. I, I, I like the way you're thinking, Jesus. You know, just I'm really kind of finding my my way through my sexuality. For me, had to be linked through my spirituality. Yeah. And it had to be a, a spirituality that was revisited and find calm through. Yeah. Because so much of it was really not how I felt deep down and igniting my intuition about it and go, that was the message I received and what I believed. Mm-hmm. Does that hold true for me in my current circumstances? Yeah. And if it doesn't, and if it just brings shame and if it brings more condemnation, then I went. That's not. That's yeah. not what God's about. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. You so beautifully just described what we call um, reconstructing our faith. So, when we, you know, it's really important for you know we're in our thirties. You know, people in their twenties, thirties, and forties that come from conservative Christian fundamentalist backgrounds. Um, and, and other religious backgrounds that are fundamentalists that instill sort of this black and white thinking, um, an us and them thinking um, there's a certain way to behave, there's a certain way to think, there's a certain way to feel you can feel or don't feel certain ways and um, and there's certain information that's okay for you to consume and not consume. So when we have a religious, movement that says you know it's called the bite model b-i-t-e behavior control information control thought control and emotional control so when we have religion that sort of tells us how we should think and feel about ourselves um that's when the misuse of religion comes in that's when religious abuse comes in right because we're being told that um yeah it's okay to have sex in marriage it's not okay to touch yourself or it's it's okay to feel um happy and joyful it's not okay to be sad and fearful you know so it's sort of when religion comes in and and it tells us how we are supposed to live our lives it's gone a bit to that extent to the behavior information thought and emotional control it's gone a bit too far and that's when we, we see religious abuse come in So when we see wonderful religious spiritual expressions come in is when it's inclusive, when it's affirming, and when it's humanistic in nature, when it helps us discover the beauty of who we are, and when it connects us with community, and when it gives us rituals of connection that we can celebrate each year, when it gives us a sense of I belong here. You know, Those are the beautiful things that religious affiliation and spirituality can give to us. And those are really important things about about being human is to have that sense of community and purpose. And, um, and so kind of what I'm hearing you talk about is that reconstruction process. Well, I've been given all this information of how I'm supposed to live, but that didn't necessarily work out for me. You know, I, you know, for me, I was a single mom for nine years You know, for you, you had this wonderful marriage and you lost your husband. What are you supposed to do now? So all those things that we are told on how we were supposed to act, behave, think and feel and how and how that relates to the way we treat our bodies doesn't necessarily fit for us all the time. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do with that? How do we maintain our spirituality? How do we maintain these beautiful parts of our faith, but then dismantle some of these things that, that don't fit for us anymore, that don't make sense for us anymore, and that bring us shame and that bring us down and that bring us depression and anxiety and, and loneliness, you know. So we need to then, a lot of people our age are reconstructing their faith, which means block by block, they're looking at things and like, okay, this, this doesn't fit with my values. This doesn't fit with my understanding of what health and wellness is for me. I'm going to take this down. But this block, you know, of the Trinity, like you said, or that God is love or that um, there is no condemnation for those that belong to him. You know, these are important blocks in my faith. And so restructuring and rebuilding our faith is a really important part of being in your 20s, 30s and 40s. And it's very, very important if we want to maintain any part of our faith to do that, when what we've been told in our religious messages don't fit for us
0: anymore. Mm. Yeah. And it's really, really important, I think, especially for people that are going, for anyone really, but for people that are going through a journey that now they are, they feel completely alone. And I'm sure that there were times for you, you know, being a single mom, Um that you felt completely alone. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes I feel like I I, I'm a grown woman, but especially initially when Jason died, I felt like a little girl lost and abandoned, having to look after two little girls Mm -hmm. that were also grieving. Um so there is this part of us that I think that is it's that inner child that is um Constantly looking for affirmation and and i think that if we don't look after ourselves if we do not do that reconstruction deconstruction and reconstruction of, of our faith we do not only ourselves a huge disfavor but also the people around us especially if we have children yes because they are looking at us they, yes. they are going through their own grief they are going through their own um stuff and if they if they are looking at us and we're pretending that everything is okay and we're falling apart on the inside, um, then they will not feel like they have the space or the affirmation to not be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm the mother of two teenagers, right? The hormones are raging right, <laughs> in this household. Um, there's tribal periods and all of that going on, right? At the same time that there's grief. Um yeah. And so for me as a woman, I think it's my responsibility to to find who I am, to give myself permission, not just to grieve, but permission to express my sexuality, permission to um, express my emotions and, and, and to readjust my behavior and my thoughts about things because my kids are watching me. And they are growing yeah. up. And so what is what am I modeling for them as young women who um, once upon a time, perhaps I would be very much hiding, you know, my sexuality from them, my sensuality from them. And now what I find really tricky is how do I do this? And I'm going to use the word in a tasteful way because I want them to actually have um, a a view of sex not as something that is supposed to be secretive and shameful and distasteful but I want them to see their mother flourishing um, you know and because I am giving myself permission to do things that are private to me that they don't have anything to do with but that again, it's kind of like bleeding through other areas of my life. And I can tell you one thing, the moment I really felt like there is no guilt, in me exploring my body and my sexuality in a healthy private way, I can tell that there was a shift that happened for me. I became less irritable with my kids. I became more calm when the waves of grief would come. I'll be like, I can do this. It's okay. I became more settled in things that otherwise would really disrupt me. Um, So having... Starting to regain that power for myself, and to have that sexual tension somehow released in healthy, safe ways for me, have definitely been something that I can see have benefit my children because now they have a mother that's not on edge all the time, or you know, and and I don't mean to say this in a in a creepy disgusting way it's just really in a healthy way like being someone who's taking charge of my own sexuality and and finding ways to be okay with myself not only in that but also how that connects with my spirituality my emotions and my mental well-being have definitely paid off in positive ways for other areas of my life including how I mother my children and I did not even think that that was going to be an outcome of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I get the sense that that didn't come lightly. That wasn't easy. There was many messages you needed to overcome. There were many um, uncomfortable feelings and and worries, and there was even a reconstructing of your faith to be able to get there. And I get the sense that you're so relieved and happy that you're there and you know it benefits your community, your children and your own well-being. And I'm just so curious if you could look back to that person before you gave yourself permission to explore your body and explore your sexuality, for one. Now, on this side, like, what would it be that you would want that person to know? That that touchy on it to know, what would you want her to know, looking back?
0: Um. Look, if I could go back in time, you know, like three and a half years ago um, and sit down and have a cup of coffee with my three and a half year younger self, <laughs> I would say, girl, you really have to give yourself permission to explore your sexuality. And it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. And it is something that I think that what I did not have that I would give myself um, a little bit of a pep talk with was find one or two close friends you know girlfriends that you trust that you can go and talk to them and say I am struggling with this mm-hmm. and not only in a sense of please pray for me because you know I don't want this to be prayed away I actually want to be in it and to face it knowing that I've got a couple of people there that I can talk about my struggles Mm -hmm. and that perhaps they might have very different views from me which um, I'm not scared of people having different views from me I actually think that when we surround ourselves with everybody that thinks the same we do ourselves a huge disfavor because um, having people that have views that are different help us to grow and to challenge our own preconceived ideas. But I think that, yeah, if I really could go back in time and give myself some advice, it would be number one, don't delay. Because actually it's pretty awesome. You, you're you going to discover some things that you're going to be like, whoa, I did not know I could do that to myself. <laughs> um, and second would be, Um, create a tight little vault kind of community you know one or two friends you don't need more than that Mm -hmm. choose very wisely because not everybody can hold the the sacredness and the beauty and the turmoil that Mm -hmm. comes with somebody else's sexuality so choose wisely but do find those people that you can be completely open about and that You can cry, or you can share your victories. Because along the way, there are some moments that you're like, "Oh crap, that did not that did not go very well." But there are some moments that you kind of, "Whoa, that was like that was unexpected in a very good way." So I think the hard thing for me was actually to have to do all of this alone. Yeah. And, and yeah, giving myself permission to explore, but also to find people that could be a, a part of that journey. Of course, you don't share everything, you know, there's your privacy, there's the things that are sacred just for you. But definitely having someone that, that can actually say to you, um, affirm you mm-hmm. as you are struggling with it, you know, somebody that can hold the hope for you when you yeah. can't quite find your way through yeah it's really yeah. important
1: absolutely that's really beautifully said do you feel like um and it sounds like and I think you kind of got to this already but the three and a half years and in your journey of exploring yourself solo sex like if you had to kind of map that out was it I think you used the word clunky I think you used the word like it, it what would that be like as far as a journey if you kind of map it out for people? Was it like a straight
0: trajectory? Was there highs and lows? Was it all over the place, chaotic? It was all over the place. There were times when th- some things were really straightforward. Um, and, you know, I actually did a lot of research. I needed to understand how my body works because I felt that was taboo for me to even touch myself. I didn't, even, I had to buy a little mirror, right? And let's look at this. And I went, oh, I didn't know it looked like that. You know, and 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 some things for me were quite, um, perhaps the word clinical. You know, just kind of like observing things and and kind of go, okay, if I touch here, what what happens? And 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 I think that it was really. Um, all over the place I think it wasn't it wasn't even like up and down it was kind of like a spaghetti bowl like you couldn't use mm-hmm. some but sometimes when I found like there was a little breakthrough um, for me you know like I remember the first time that I actually climax on my own and I was so pleased with myself <laughs> a little skip on my step and 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 I of course, nobody needed to know that it was almost mm. like something that I wish I could even share with Jason. You know, mm. I wish, I, I wish mm. he could be here. I remember, yeah. um, I remember just crying afterwards, yeah. you know, just um, laying in my bed and weeping for my husband because I wish that he was here. Yeah. Um, and having that bittersweet, it feels it, it was just a part of it, you know, um, sometimes when I, I was actually able to to really pleasure myself in a, in a really lovely way or, or sometimes in a really intense kind of like with an urgency kind of way, I wanted to share those things with him and he was not here. So everything yeah. for me had that happy, sad kind of thing and, and making peace with that was also very hard because initially i just felt like what is the point i'm going to give up and then i wouldn't try anything for two or three months and then of course the desire and the need would escalate and then i would try again and um and so it was definitely clunky it was definitely all over the place it was definitely some a few steps forward and then perhaps two steps forward three steps back um and and it took not only perseverance but I think some determination because I thought I actually believe that anything that you suppress does not go away it just escalates and it will bite you in the back at one point or another and it can do that in very toxic ways if you don't pay attention so I'm a firm believer of whatever is that I'm most afraid of or most uncomfortable about as long as it's safe for me to go towards it, I'll go towards it mm-hmm. um, because avoiding things that make me feel uncomfortable or afraid. in yeah. my experience just um, compounds the, the issues later. Mm-hmm.
1: So to suppress it could mean, in the sense of both grief and sexuality, to suppress it would mean it to come back in sort of a tidal wave
0: even, even yeah. stronger. Yeah. Or, or I, I have, um, I've met someone, um, through, you know, my blog, someone that I don't know personally, but was reading my blog and this person, um, share a few things with me. And for this person, uh, the, the sexual desire was so intense, but the guilt and the shame from a religious background was so strong that this person just felt like they could not explore that on their own and eventually what happened was this person started having sex with random people and and it it became like what you said before something that kind of dominated their lives and became a little bit out of control for them and more and more in risky situations yeah And I think that once we find ourselves healing from trauma, we start to take some risks. For me, taking the risk of discovering my own body and my own sexuality was a risk, you know. Um, But I think it was a a risk that it was slowly and measured and, and done in a safe way for myself because I needed that. And I think for this person, the suppression was so intense that when it, Exploded. Um, it took over. She was not in control of her sexuality anymore. It became her sexuality taking over her. Mm-hmm. And and I remember listening to this story and and yes. just listening to this person. You know, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a grief counselor. So please go and find somebody else that can help you through this. And I don't know if this person has or not. But I think that it kind of gave me a little bit of a jolt of fear of going. Um, wow, I I can tell that there are some things that when they are suppressed, they can come back with a vengeance if you are not paying attention to it, especially when it has to do with your body. Because I think our bodies gives a signal for things that are going on in deeper levels of our mind and our emotions as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. Mm
0: -hmm. And And I
1: also also, want to go back to some of the intersections that you're highlighting, your sexuality and grief, and even the journey of you exploring yourself and the first time you climax or different times where there was an urgency intensity and finding fun new things about yourself came with great joy and great sadness at the same time thinking, then going back to thinking about, oh, I wish Jason could see this. I wish Jason could be a part of this. I wish we could explore this together. And that seems like there's another intersection there yeah in your experience, and I imagine with a lot of other people too, that have enough courage to do what you're doing and to um, explore their body for the first time after a wonderful marriage and a loss of a spouse. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that, more so of that intersection there after with grief and that sexual exploration.
0: You know what, I've just noticed that you are now interviewing me. <laughs> How did this happen, Christy? What? <laughs> okay, well, um, to answer your question now that you are interviewing me, um, I, there is no easy way to answer that. I think that is just that I cannot speak for anybody else apart from myself. I think that for me, it really comes down to um, I don't believe that you, we move on from grief. I don't believe grief is something that you, it's not a pathology that you get cured from. Mm-hmm. It's its an experience that if you lost someone that you love, um, you're going to carry this grief for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So... F- I firmly believe that. I believe that grief is not something you get over. It's something that you learn to live with. Mm -hmm. And because I embrace my grief and I allow it to be there, some days it expresses itself um, through a lot of anger. Some days it expresses itself through I need to cry. Some days I just need to go for a long walk or run or call a friend or eat five pieces of chocolate cake, whatever that might be, I give myself permission to grieve. And I do that on a constant basis. It is not something that I did back then, it's something that I constantly do it for myself. I give myself permission to grieve and I give my grief permission to be there. Mm -hmm. And so I think that early on, um, making that decision that I was going to embrace my grief has really benefited me because when not only in my sexuality but in other areas like when I got you know a part in the in the in a film for example that I just shot recently and I knew that Jason would be there he would come and help on set and I would be sharing with him if he was not there you know every day I was super happy that I was filming and then I would come home after 12 hours exhausted and happy and then I would walk inside the house and burst into tears because Jason wasn't here to share that with me Mm -hmm. when my my daughter graduated from high school you know I was so happy for her and at the same time that was that you know the knot in my stomach really wanting Jason to be there Mm -hmm. and so I think embracing the grief is really the foundation for anything else that you want to grow and explore and come to thrive from. Because I know that for me, I shifted from I need to survive to how do I rebuild my life in a way that I'm thriving? And that shift really could not have happened if I did not give myself permission to grieve on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Did I answer your question?
1: Absolutely. You hundred percent did. I think it all comes back to that self-compassion that allowing yourself to be congruent with whatever it is you're experiencing in that moment. And when we should ourselves or shame ourselves or criticize ourselves for, because we want us to feel something different. Maybe we want to feel like we don't need to, you know, a, a sexual outlet. Maybe we don't feel like we want to give our perspective, permission to be sad and happy at the same time. And I, I mean, a lot of times, no matter what sort of folks I am seeing for whatever different reasons in therapy, a lot of times where people really get tripped up and really struggle with mental health concerns is when they should themselves and they Mm -hmm. criticize themselves. And so this idea of self-compassion of accepting the grief as is a lifelong process. And And that it's not going to go away. And this is part of who you are and part of your experience of of losing somebody that you love and and allowing it to be that wave instead of suppressing it and becoming a tsunami in other areas of your life, you know? And so sort of maintaining space for that every day, maintaining space from that moment to moment, um, even in those happy moments, maintaining space for your grief along the way so that it doesn't. Um, you know, trip you up in other areas because you're suppressing and ignoring and shoving and criticizing yourself. Mm.
0: Grief needs space, I think. And, and only the person who is grieving can determine what that space is. Because I've realized that a lot of people wanted to tell me how I should grieve. People that have never lost their husbands. Um, and even if they had, Um, their relationship with their husband is completely different from my relationship with my husband. Nobody was Jason's wife. I was. And so I think that early early on, I just decided, ain't nobody going to tell me how to do this. I don't know how to grieve a husband, but damn sure I'm going to learn this on my own because this is my grief, nobody else's. And by allowing myself to discover how I needed to grieve and give myself the space and permission for my grief to be what it was, even if it was not um, expressed in a way that it was palatable to other people, I kind of became the person that would be like, I choose my grief over anybody else's comfort. And and being so stubborn, I'm a little bit stubborn. And so being so stubborn, it was um, it served me well, I think, in the long run. Uh, initially, I lost friends. And I really struggled with so many things. I thought, am I becoming a bitch? Like, what is going on? Am I becoming this bitter person? Am I, um, you know, where is my compassion for others? But it was at a time when I thought, I need to learn to become compassionate towards myself. I need to learn to become the person that is going to give me what I need because my whole life has been about um, in some way pleasing other people. I think there was lots of abandonment issues that I had that I had to kind of go, okay, up to now, I've been doing lots of things that I really don't want to do because I don't want other people to abandon me if I say no to them. And in that process, I abandoned myself time and time again. And so even discovering and exploring my sexuality has to do with this thing of me going, I'm never gonna abandon myself anymore. I'm gonna be the one person that is always going to be there for me, no matter what. Changing the way I talk to myself was a big part of that. Allowing myself to do things or not to do things was a big part of that and and I can see the progression because it started with giving myself permission to cry in public and it's now in this area of giving myself permission to um explore my sexuality in ways that I think are really important for me um So it is a progression. You don't get, you know, like, oh, my husband's dead. Let me learn how to masturbate the next day. You know, you need to learn how to give yourself permission and to be on your own court every single day, every step. And and I think that if you do that, then you start creating space to explore other areas of your life. And that's when grief can become a, a gift Because in some ways you have been through, I think nothing in the world has been harder for me than to bury my husband. Mm -hmm. And that became the benchmark of what is really difficult. Mm -hmm. So now, number one, I don't fall apart for things that are lesser than that. You know, Um, it still rattles me up, but it's not something that destroys me, but also... It's kind of like, oh, I buried my husband. Okay, so I can give myself permission to masturbate. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it becomes like, I don't know, like when that's the benchmark. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, a lot of perspective. I, it sounds like um healthy grieving has required you to be Extremely emotionally, you've always been emotionally aware and emotionally intelligent, but really emotionally accepting and compassionate, allowing multiple feelings to be within yourself at at the same time and really honoring that for what it is. And not shaming it, not shitting it, and just really just creating space um, at every step of the way. And I think I think what you're saying is that that all ties back to your sexuality because you can't tap into that without having that space for both the grief and the excitement and the newness and the, ooh, this feels good, because it's all have to be there at the same time or it's not going to really work. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I remember reading this book that you posted about, it was called uh, Come As You Are.
1: Yay, I love that book, Emily Nagowski.
0: Yeah, sorry, what's her name again, Emily?
1: Nagowski.
0: Yes, I remember reading that right at that time when I started going, what is happening to my body? I don't know what to do with all this sexual desire. Um oh in the sexual energy you know and i remember you mentioning that book and you posted a photo of it on facebook and i went uh, i got it from my library and i devoured that book and that book i had so many aha moments in that book so i think that also it's really important if i would go back again with that question you had before like three and a half years ago like um, oh not three and a half years ago because I was not in the right state of mind for for that then a year and a half ago when I started really feeling really that that, that skin hunger and that deep desire sexual desire kind of like really not awakening because it was already awake but just like screaming in my face um I would go okay honey read this book
1: <laughs> okay
0: come as you, are. you read that you yeah. find a couple of friends that also read that to support mm-hmm. yourself. They will benefit from 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 that, but it's to support you and and get yourself a couple of toys that you're going to learn how to use. You know, yes. um, get yourself a mirror, a little light, and 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 go <laughs> for it. Because if you don't, this is definitely an area that um, that can. I really think that it's an area that can really kind of put the plug on um, you finding a way to thrive amidst your grief. Yeah. Because um, I think for anybody that loses a a partner that you love, even if the relationship was complicated or hurtful before, you know, um, you lose a part of yourself. You lose that one person that, that touched you, that kissed you, that hugged you. that um, and, and that we need that. We need mm-hmm. to be touched. We need to be hugged. We need to find um, a rel- not just a release. It's not something that's building up, but a, a, an expression of our sexuality that is yeah. healthy. Um, because without that area, I don't think that I would be able to start um redesigning what my life or or reimagining what my life can be now yeah without jason being physically present he's very much a part of my life but he's not physically present and i need to find a way to reimagine what my future can be like and i think that for me i can definitely see now in hindsight that exploring my sexual energy has being one of the keys to unlock this desire to actually rebuild my life not just for the sake of the kids Mm or for for my own sake Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it sounds like it was very key in this healing in this journey and in your grief process without it um it sounds like you wouldn't be where you're at today as far as thriving and aliveness and eroticism while maintaining that very important space for grief. Yeah. I didn't realize the book was that pivotal for you. I <laughs> yes. recommend that book a lot to a lot of clients, a lot of clients.
0: Yeah, And yeah. I, I mean, it
1: changed me. It changed. I need to go back and read it again. It's like, probably one of the most important books I've read, especially given our background.
0: Yeah. Same for me. Yeah. So I think that, oh my gosh, we have been um, at this for over an hour, like, and um, and I'm quite aware of um your time, and I'm just so so grateful that we got the chance to have this conversation. I feel like I dominated the conversation. I had so many questions for you, and I ended up just blah, 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 talking a lot. You can tell I don't talk about this a lot, right? Because a lot came out, and and now it's gonna come out, and anybody can hear. Mm, don't know how I feel about that, but um. Well,
1: it's beautiful because you're giving space for people to not grieve alone, you know? And like you said, your, your grief with Jason is unique to you, but that experience of aloneness has got to be universal for those who've lost a spouse, right? Of just, no one can understand how lonely and isolating that experience is. And then the loss of your sexual partner in addition to that. And so I think you sharing your experience of it is giving folks a sense of solidarity and being just that much less alone.
0: Yeah, hopefully. So do you have any Anything else that you might want to say, you know, in this area, you know, if you could. Now, here is a question: If you could go to, you know, three years ago or even a year and a half ago, and I would come to you and say, "Oh, Christy, I'm in this journey." Like, um, what would you say to me mm-hmm. about grief, or about, about even about the intersection between grief and sexuality? Mm-hmm.
1: I think I think the thing that I've learned about grief that is just really important for me and all of us to be aware is kind of what you're getting into in that you know the DSM may have a 6 month timeline for people that are grieving and then anything past that 6 month is considered the sort of like complicated grief or unresolved grief or like this idea that you're supposed to after six months move on. And I think what I have learned is that that's not the case.
0: Mm, case.
1: And I think the other thing that I've learned is that our, especially our society, I don't know about New Zealand, but our society is uncomfortable with sadness. And so part of the reason why people that are grieving are so misunderstood is because the people they're trying to reach out to for comfort and solidarity and connection are not okay with their sadness they're trying to contain that sadness they're trying to change that sadness they're trying to tell them to look at the bright side or because people are uncomfortable yeah. and that's their fault that's their that's their loss and that's their um, lack of emotional intelligence that doesn't have anything that's not a reflection of whether or not your grieving process is right or good or valid or not. You know, that's more a reflection of their own inability to, be, um, to make space for really, really important emotions. And so I think that's something that I've learned over the last three years that's really important uh, for, for folks that, that find, like you said, find those really close, important people that make space for whatever emotion you're feeling at that moment. It doesn't matter. All emotions should be welcome. All emotions have valid um, importance. They're significant, and they're there for a reason. And so to find those safe people that you can go from laughing to crying, you know, within 30 seconds. Yeah. Find that person that it's okay to be that with. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Yeah. So we're coming to the end of this conversation and i'm gonna ask you a couple of questions that i ask everybody that comes sure. out. and one of the questions is if you knew that today was the very last day that you have on this earth
1: mm-hmm.
0: how would you spend your day who would you see what would you do what would you say
1: yeah that is such a beautiful question it's an existential question if you will um I think definitely would take the day off work for sure. Um, and I would spend it with my family outside. Um, Cause I feel like some of the best connection that I experience with the people that are meaningful to me is quality time in nature, doing something active, something recreational, you know, and I feel like, those are the times that hold the most value to me. And so I definitely would get my family, get outside, be really physically affectionate, um, expressing how much I love them and proud of them. And, you know, my hopes and, and wishes for them, you know, for the future to be able to be, live their fullest life, whatever that means for them, I think would be how I would spend that.
0: Cool. And the last question I have is, say that you had one whole year. That's it. Mm -hmm. One year to live, and then your time on this earth would come to an end. Mm -hmm. What kind of legacy would you hope to live behind? Mm.
1: I think it would probably be, um, I think what I've... Um, (laughs) I think I'm becoming more and more, uh, vocal about religious trauma and the impacts that religious trauma has on our lives. When, and when I say religious trauma, I mean the misuse of religious power. So I don't mean people's faith. I don't mean people's spirituality. I mean, when, when religion goes too far and and harms folks, that really suppresses folks, that really does some harmful things about that we talked in our a lot in our talk today. You know, legitimizing the term, legitimizing the problem, and letting people know that they're not alone in that adverse experience, I think, would be something that would be really meaningful for me to continue. Because it's it's something I'm doing now, but it's not something that I've done a lot of. So to continue to legitimize that term.
0: And I think that it's a legacy that would benefit so many people, Mm -hmm. so many people. So Mm -hmm. um, often I see that the things that I'm really, really passionate about and the injustices that I am most vocal about mm-hmm. are often things that I have experienced myself and that mm-hmm. sense of compassion and empathy comes from having been traumatized myself mm-hmm. and so I think that, that there is such an important and powerful message when you have the lived experience of something and you somehow become aware of it and are able to restructure your life to find healthy ways to deal with that. And I'm just so grateful, so grateful for you and the work that you're doing. And yep. yeah, work at that legacy because I think it would be just really phenomenal to bring healing to a lot of people.
1: Thank you. Thank you for asking the questions.
0: You are welcome. Thank you for asking me questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love you from the bottom of my heart. I wish I was there in Kansas City to give you a really squeezy hug. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you guys are hugging there because of social distancing or whatever, but I'm going to give you a a virtual hug right now. Thank you you for making the time to see me. I love you from the bottom of my heart, Mm -hmm. and I'll be seeing you soon. I love you, too. Thank you. See ya. Bye. We have come to the end of our episode, and I want to acknowledge you, my darling, who have been listening to this conversation. Thank you so much for your time and your attention. Chances are you found crazy grief because you are grieving the death of your person, or you want to support someone who is grieving. I am so sorry our paths have crossed in this way, but I am glad we found each other. My email is on the show notes. Please reach out. I would love to hear from you. Do subscribe to this podcast and leave us a five-star rating so we can continue to produce more meaningful conversations about grief. And remember, you're not going crazy. You're just grieving. Take a moment to breathe, reach out to someone you trust, and be kind to yourself. Light and peace.